Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, author, cultural critic, and City University of New York historian Tanisha Ford talks about her biography of Molly Moon, a woman who was a fundraising powerhouse during the 20th century. Ford's book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement, was published by Amistad in October 2023. Tanisha Ford was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Alilia Bundles. Tanisha Ford, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Alilia. It's great to be in conversation with you. Oh, you know, I have been following you and admiring your work for a long time. So uh, my homegirl, Tanisha, and I get a chance to talk about her latest book on Molly Moon. So Tanisha, who is Molly Moon? Molly Moon was many things, really. She was a social worker, a major fundraiser for the civil rights movement, a hostess with the mostest, if you will, um, a wife, a mother. Uh, she wore many hats. And what I have come to appreciate about her most is Molly Moon, the institution builder, someone who not only established the National Urban League Guild, the fundraising and volunteer arm of the National Urban League, but also the Beaux-Arts Ball, which was her annual fundraiser for the National Urban League that brought together people from across the New York City society, working class people, particularly working class African-Americans. I mean, she was a real builder and power broker, but she comes from humble roots. She was born in Hattiesburg, Mississippi in 1907 to young parents who cared a great deal about education and they encouraged Molly Moon to receive high school education, which was a big deal for African-Americans at the turn of the 20th century. And then she went on after high school to earn a degree in pharmacy from Meharry Medical School. And it was that kind of collegiate training that really set her on a path of intellectual discovery, civic engagement, and so forth. Well, you know, one of the things that you, I mean, you just said, she had many dimensions. But I think one of the things that you really do in our secret society is to explore those dimensions in ways that would be surprising to people who knew Molly Moon later in life, when she's a doyen of society in Harlem, in a sense. But her early life really was with the political left, and that would be surprising to most people. How did that shape her politics? It was one of the things that surprised me as well, because when I first encountered Molly Moon in the archive, it was in the early 1960s, when she is this grand dame of Harlem. You know, she's older in life, and she was very set in terms of her image and what she represented to the African-American community and, and broader New York society as well. So I was pleasantly surprised to discover that she had this earlier life. And as you say, I mean, it was definitely tied to the Black left. When she moved to Harlem in the early 1930s, she joined a community of intellectuals, artists, 
activists, people like Langston Hughes, Dorothy West, Louise Thompson Patterson, Zora Neale Hurston. In fact, she and Zora Neale Hurston lived in the same apartment building in Midtown Manhattan, the San Juan Hill area. So when Louise Thompson is charged by the Communist Party to create a cast for a film that is to be a racial propaganda film about the horrors of segregation and labor exploitation across the U.S. South, Louise Thompson recruits Molly Moon to be a part of that cast. So Molly Moon and Langston Hughes and Dorothy West and, and Henry Lee Moon, they are a part of this group that goes to Moscow in 1932. And most of them were not members of the Communist Party, Molly included, but they were excited about the opportunity to travel abroad. And Moscow was, at that moment, what we often think of it Paris is being, you know, like this really exciting place, vibrant in terms of its artistic production and so forth. And it was a nascent, you know, city. Um, and they got to go there at that time in history. And it was a transformative experience for Molly Moon and also other members of the cast. Molly leaves Moscow when the film goes bust before it's ever even made. And she moves to Berlin. So she's definitely shaped by these political communities that she is immersed in, in Harlem, Moscow, and Berlin. And those teachings definitely help her understand her own class position as a Black woman who, in many ways, had ascended to the middle class, but who came from very much working class roots. She saw the importance of a political vanguard movement with working class people at the vanguard of that movement. So. She's deeply shaped by these politics. And even as she begins to work with the National Urban League in the 1940s, which is a much more moderate organization, she brings a lot of those left-leaning politics into the early formation of the National Urban League Guild. Well, and she was not Molly Moon yet when she was in Moscow. She becomes Molly Moon. And that relationship with Henry Lee Moon leads her into a new social circle. So talk a little bit about their relationship and then how that connects to the National Urban League Guild and her work with the National Urban League. So when we first encounter Molly in the book, she's Molly Lewis, her maiden name. And she, Molly Lewis and Henry Moon are on this trip to Moscow. And by all accounts, they're not close friends at the time. In fact, I think I was able to discover in the archive that Molly and Dorothy West had dated briefly and Molly and Dorothy were really good friends. So I think Henry was off limits at that time, but they begin a friendship after that trip and it emerges or blossoms into a correspondence and then into a romance that they keep secret from many people in their social circle. So you have two young people who are launching their careers, Molly Moon in social work. Henry Lee Moon, of course, is a journalist, but has now found work in FDR's White House as a lower level administrator in, in the New Deal government. And Molly's able to utilize his network now with people in D.C. who are D.C. movers and shakers like Robert Weaver, who's a big wig in the housing authority and all the people that move through their circle. So the, the Moons, once they are married in 1938, in many ways become the taste of D.C. because of Molly Moon's party planning skills. So by the time her good friend and colleague, Lester Granger, a social worker um, as well, becomes head of the National Urban League, he invites Molly Moon to 
formed this fundraising wing of the National Urban League, which she names the National Urban League Guild. And part of the reason why he charges her with doing so is because she has amassed this powerful address book of people from New York City to DC. Again, members are of, of this artistic community and intellectual community. And now thanks to Henry Lee Moon's connections, members of a political community in DC. So she and Henry really grow into what I frame as a power couple to use today's language. People who both have their own high powered careers as individuals, but once they come together, they're able to advance a much larger political agenda for the black community in the way of racial equality. Henry Moon is eventually appointed as the publicity director of the NAACP. And again, by the late 1940s, once Henry assumes this role, Molly Moon has established guild chapters in many major cities across the country. So, you know, this would be contradictory to people. She's with the left. She's in Moscow. She's not a communist, but she's flirting around with that idea. And then she becomes a major fundraiser who is moving in the highest circles, the society circles of New York. How does that reconcile itself? Because she's going from being in Moscow to interacting uh, with Rockefellers. Yes, when she takes on this post uh, as the head of the National Urban League Guild, her much smaller circle, which did mostly consist of whites and Blacks who are part of you know, the left wing, now expands. And now she's organizing alongside the Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, the Javitses. I mean, these old money New York City families and many of these people who comprise this New York City elite have different pro political views than Molly Moon's own views. Some of them are political conservatives, religious conservatives, social conservatives, fiscal conservatives, you know. And so she's having to figure out ways that, you know, she can bring her full self into the new room she finds herself in without alienating these potential big dollar donors. And this is a tension in the book that I don't try to reconcile. I really want readers to wrestle with what it would be like to be a Black woman in the 1940s and 50s and walking into these very vaunted spaces with a mission, you know, and that mission is to collect money to support your cause. I mean, she definitely is ridiculed in certain circles, particularly among younger Black radicals, for what they see as accommodationist politics, that anyone who would want to be in a room with people who represent capitalism and this long history of racial capitalism or capitalism that has been built on the exploitation of African-Americans must be some sort of sellout to the race. And so I try to bring in those voices as well so that we can see a fuller spectrum of political ideologies and perspectives from the Black community as we move into the 1960s and the civil rights movement becomes more about direct nonviolent action, um, engaged protests. And in some cases, I mean, once we move to the mid to the late 1960s, armed resistance as well. So Molly Moon is a, an interesting uh, vantage point through which we can study these larger political dynamics that mark the civil rights movement era. Well, and she raised millions of dollars for the civil rights movement. That is really an untold or undertold story. Most certainly. We don't really talk about money when we talk about the movement. In large part, I think, because the money makes us uncomfortable. 
Because if we start to follow the money, we could perhaps find that our leaders have capitulated to the interests of philanthropic foundations and corporations, meaning that accepting this money means steering the movement away from more grassroots, radical causes and more toward moderate causes such as education or voter registration issues, which, you know, felt safe to corporations who wanted to get involved in the fight for racial equality. Another concern is oftentimes that we would see maybe ties to the underground economy or to the CIA and how the CIA was funding various movement initiatives and endeavors. So people just don't want to go there. We like to think that we live in a democracy where everyone you know, has a seat at the table and where basic human rights and civic rights are given to all U.S. citizens. But that's not the case. And African-Americans have raised billions of dollars you know, from Molly Moon's lifetime to the present to, you know, secure basic things like the right to vote. So focusing on the money and how the money is raised really enables us to have complex conversations about what we mean when we say American democracy. Well, and she was using sometimes glamour and fashion and other kinds of things to raise money but it put her at odds with some of the leadership of some of the organizations so that by the time we get to the late 50s and into the 60s, some of the men who are leading the organizations are really kind of marginalizing her. But she's rescued by a younger generation of Black women. Most certainly. Black women are the ones I credit with pulling Molly Moon from the margins back into the center of the National Urban League history. And then through my work, my goal is to pull her back into the center of the civil rights movement narrative. I say that because once Whitney Young becomes the head of the National Urban League, he enacts different policies and strategies for movement organizing and marginalizes many of the people who came into the organization in the Lester Granger years. And that includes Molly Moon. She loses her seat on the board of the National Urban League, although she's still hosting her events through the National Urban League Guild, like her annual Beaux-Arts Ball and also the Ebony Fashion Fair, which she was the first to bring to New York in the early 1960s. These events aren't as much of a major fundraiser as they were for the league in earlier years because Whitney Young has made it his point to recruit dollars from, you know, major corporations like Pepsi and later foundations like the Ford Foundation and so forth. So Molly Moon becomes more of a figurehead in terms of how the men within the movement see her. But because of the work she's done with younger Black women, it's them who call the male leadership out and say, wait a minute, Molly Moon has been doing this work for you tirelessly while also holding down a full-time job. She's been a major volunteer without being compensated for this labor. We need to recognize her work. And it's because of these women's efforts that the National Urban League creates a Molly Moon Volunteerism Award in 1989. She's recognized by Mayor Dinkins, the first Black mayor of New York City in 1990. And then she's also recognized by the first President Bush for her volunteerism. But all of these things happen in the year leading up to Molly Moon's passing, right? So it's it's a praise that she gets at the end of her life, even though she hasn't, in my opinion, been celebrated in the way that she should have been for the life that she lived. 
Well, let's talk a bit about writing biography. The story is so amazing, and it's probably a book that couldn't have been published 15, even 10 years ago, because she would not have been seen as being significant. And you have given her significance. You have added to the narrative. But I'm just curious how you came to discover Molly Moon. I discovered Molly Moon in the archive when I was a dissertator. So this would have been around 2010. I was working on my dissertation. I was doing research at the Schomburg Center. I was actually looking for someone else, another woman, for the dissertation I was writing. And it turned out that that woman was a contestant in Molly Moon's Beaux-Arts Ball beauty pageant. And I thought, Molly Moon, what an incredible name. Like, I didn't know many Black women named Molly and Molly Moon and just the alliteration of it all. It sounded amazing. And here this Black woman was hosting a beauty pageant in the early 1960s. I wanted to know more about her. I started to collect all the newspaper clippings I could find about Molly Moon. And through that research, learn more about the National Urban League Guild. And then once I started to spend time in Molly Moon's personal archives, reading her letters and correspondence, I saw that although we don't know her name today in the ways that we should, we know all these people she was connected to, you know, like Langston Hughes and Dorothy West, but also Josephine Baker, James Baldwin, Ruby D, Ossie Davis. I mean, the list really goes on in terms of the people that she knew and befriended, people who partied at her house. I mean, Romare Bearden, um, Ralph Bunch, Lorraine Hansberry. These were all people that she worked alongside in various capacities and just formed lifelong friendships with. So I wanted to honor this woman. And as you say, part of the reason why we don't recognize her contributions is because there are these very limited frameworks that historians and other authors of biography have created to study women attached to the civil rights movement. So you're either a church woman who, you know, works within the church and you're associated with the movement across the Deep South, or you're a young radical who's on the front line of the urban movements across the West Coast and the East Coast. And then the last category would be to be seen as a woman who's on the front lines in terms of like some of the legal battles. So we have biographies of women like Ella Baker, um, Rosa Parks, Angela Davis. We have people, you know, Angela, Angela Davis case, we have her autobiography. We have people, you know, who have life stories written about them or stories that they've told for themselves that fit those categories that I mentioned. But someone like a, a Molly Moon who doesn't fit any of those categories neatly has fallen outside. So part of what I'm doing and piecing together her complex biography is trying to make space for another way for us to understand women's engagement in the civil rights movement. So there's this narrative that Black women are not in the archives, but you discovered a trove of her letters and you discovered other collections that were in conversation. Talk a bit about what that was like when you were going through those letters. The letters were really a special breakthrough, you know, because as you mentioned, most African-Americans don't have papers collected somewhere. And to have them not only collected in a space, but also organized and open to the public, that is a feat in and of itself. So I'm really thankful to the archivists at the Schomburg Center for the work that they've done with the Henry Lee and Molly Moon papers. But the reason why they were such a fine was because prior to that, the 
primary source material I was working with were newspaper articles. And those are great in the sense that I got a, a sense of the scope of her social reach. And that was good to see. It was interesting to see how newspapers were framing her. But as a Black woman's biographer, I'm really interested in the question of interiority. Like, how does Molly Moon understand herself? How does she understand her world? How does she see herself as connected to community? And hearing her through her own voice and her own letters when there weren't cameras around, when she wasn't being interviewed by a journalist, to hear her own personal voice allowed me to give depth and dimension to her story in ways that I perhaps otherwise would not be able to. So then once I was able to take her own personal letters, mostly through her correspondence with Henry Moon, because in the early years of their marriage, they lived apart with Molly based in New York City and Henry based in DC. So they wrote letters to one another in the ways that you or I would text or email today. So once I was able to use those letters, I could put them in conversation with their friends and find perhaps even their correspondence with friends in those friends' archives. So it became a form of triangulation to piece together their social circle, but to also see how these people related to one another, how they understood their bonds with one another. And I could then do that work for the group that was in Moscow in the 1930s and trace the evolution of those relationships into the 1950s. So the, the work with the letters and the archives was so important, but then I was also able to find a lot of family keepsakes um, the Western Reserve Research Library in Cleveland, Ohio, for example, has the Henry Moon family papers. So I was able to utilize a lot of family photos. And Molly Moon has a special box in the Schomburg Center collection with a lot of her old keepsakes. So I even found her yearbook from Harry Medical College, the year that she graduated in 1928, and learned that even back then she was the social chair committee of her graduating class. So it just was a, a deep dive into the past that ended up yielding big rewards for the book. And I'm very proud of the outcome of that deep dive research in the middle of a pandemic, no less, where I was doing a lot of this research from my computer with archivists sending me files that I would then go through and read on my iPad to take, you know, copious notes while reading these old letters. Yeah, well, we all owe a great debt to archivists. And, you know, and I would say as a historian, you really do have a perspective on the literature and on the body of work, a biography on Black women, as well as biography and history in general. So I remember when I was starting to do research for some of my books, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot had a book about her mother and Carol Ione had a book about her family. There were not a lot of books on the shelf. So who did you draw upon as you were beginning to do your research and as you were writing? Were there other biographers whose work particularly resonated with you? Well, I can think of one, Alelia Bundles. <laughs> <laughs> you have been such an important thought partner for me as I worked on this process. You know, I never considered myself a biographer. You know, even when I set out to write this book, I wasn't necessarily seeing it as a biography of Molly Moon, but you have helped me understand that biography is far more capacious than we think. And especially when we're writing biographies of Black women's lives, we often have to develop different methods and strategies for doing that research than some of our counterparts who work on white men, for example. And so I really appreciate being in conversation with you 
Um, Barbara Ransby was another important figure who has written two biographies of Black women connected to the civil rights movement era, her biography of Ella Baker, and then she also has one of Islanda Robeson. So in many ways, she was a gold standard for me in terms of how academics think about doing this work. Nell Painter, of course, Tamiko Brown-Nagin, who wrote the biography of Constance Baker Motley. I mean, these were some of the people who really helped me see what was possible in terms of the space of biography. I also worked with Ashley Farmer to hold a program at the Radcliffe Institute. She and I were both Radcliffe fellows, and we were able to pull together Black women who were writing biographies, and we were each at different phases of that writing process to talk about our process, to talk about strategy, to talk about how do we publish biography, how do we reach a broader audience for our work. And so that gathering was definitely essential for me as I embarked on this journey to write a book about a woman that most people had never, ever heard of. So community was definitely vital, and I'm grateful for other Black women who have used the space of life writing to tell our stories. Uh, I also turned to the work of Black women novelists, because as Toni Morrison said, novels, they're fiction, but fiction doesn't mean a lie, right? Fiction is trying to get at the truth, the truth about human, the human condition. So novelists like Morrison, uh, were really important for me. I read a lot of Morrison, Gloria Naylor, uh, Jesse Fawcett. I mean, the list really goes on. Even contemporary writers like Jasmine Ward, I mean, I was reading their novels and short stories to try to understand how Black women have written about class. I mean, Dorothy West's work was very instrumental, and Petrie, the way they write about race and class and gender and the intersections therein. So it was a mix of reading biography and novels that I think helped me create a book that was both historically rigorous in terms of the research, but also highly readable, at least that's my hope, you know, <laughs> like a novel. So listen, thank you very much. I wasn't fishing for compliments, but I I appreciate that. And I will say how much I admire how you sort of prepared the ground for the publication by writing articles for major publications and doing the pre-publication promotion and positioning. So before we close, I would just love to hear your advice to others who are publishing a book, how they position it and how you were able to use some of the other platforms to promote the book. Yes, you know, in many ways, I wasn't consciously doing some of this. I mean, some of this I was, you know, definitely around the social media piece, but using the space of, say, town and country, which has been really great to me over the years, to write stories about people who were in Molly Moon's sphere, like I, I wrote a piece on Gordon Parks, for example, in a, an event he hosted at his home in the 1950s, you know, in a Black enclave in Westchester County, you know, stories like that helped me create the context for the world that Molly Moon lived in. So I wrote these pieces about people that readers might know more than they knew the name Molly Moon to help build out that world. And then I used my social media as a space to continue to do that. So to be able to drop historical factoids about these people, but also then, you know, entice readers to want to read the book by making available a recipe book based on things that were served during the time period that the book was written. And, you know, so I, then I created a website, OurSecretSocietyBook.com, to house a lot of that material. So I would encourage authors to think about 
the world of your book and what are the various ways that you can bring readers into that world so that when they encounter your person, whether they're well-known or not, they're encountering them in the ways that you want the reader to be introduced to that person. So you can use social media as a tool to do that. Uh, world building was essential for me um, because even if the people, even if readers don't know the person who's at the center of your biography, you can help them connect to feelings and emotions that will guide the way you want them to read the book. Um, my next project is on Augusta Savage, the sculptor and institution builder. So I'll be sticking around in the 1920s and 30s to really shape the story around Augusta Savage and her institution building, both in the United States and abroad. Thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for having me. That was author and historian Tanisha Ford speaking with fellow biographer Alilia Bundles about her latest book, Our Secret Society, Molly Moon and the Glamour, Money, and Power Behind the Civil Rights Movement. It was published by Amistad in October 2023, and we recorded this interview via Zoom on November 14th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a wonderful day. <laughs>